Welcome back to Steelcast. Uh, after a few months break over the summer, very grateful to Gareth Brooks for filling in uh, in my absence. Gareth visited the UK Metals Expo up in the NEC and talked to a whole range of people uh, in the metals industry about the challenges of decarbonisation and what that means, especially for the steel industry. So thanks, Gareth. And if you haven't heard that episode, please tune in and, and listen in. It's a, it's a really good listen. Of course, since we last uh, broadcast a podcast, there's been a significant announcement in the steel industry in the government supporting Tata Steel's investment into decarbonisation and the proposal to start electric arc furnace steelmaking here in Port Talbot. Probably the most significant uh, investment announcement and technological change, certainly in my career and probably in generations. And there'll be much more to come about that over the coming months and years, and I'm sure that we'll still be in the news. In spite of that, of course, we're continuing within the steel industry to decarbonise as much as we can, invest in energy saving schemes, and uh, a huge amount of work throughout our UK sites uh, will progress over the coming years whilst we are moving towards decarbonisation. In addition to all of those schemes, we're continuing to welcome people into our business uh, to see what we're doing, to understand our existing processes, to understand the challenges of decarbonisation, and uh, to help us along that way. And in that light, I'm delighted today to welcome in Michael. Michael Lord is Senior Analyst, Industrial Carbon Decarbonisation in the Climate Change Committee. Michael, brilliant to welcome you and colleagues into the site today. You had a good look around the site, and we're going to come on to some of that about your impressions of the site. But for those people watching and listening, they will have heard of the Climate Change Committee, but they may not understand its role, its responsibilities, its reporting lines. Tell us a bit about it, will you? Yeah, sure. Um, the Climate Change Committee was set up by the Climate Change Act in 2008. It's an independent body uh, there to advise the government on climate change, both reducing emissions and adapting to the changing climate. Uh, there are committee members who are uh, luminaries, experts in their field, climate scientists, b uh, business people, senior politicians who join the committee, and then I actually work for, we, we usually say we work for the committee, but we work for the secretariat of the committee, so we support uh, the, the actual committee. And uh, we, there's a couple of key points where we, we, we continually advise government, often in response to them asking us questions, um, but there's a couple of key points where we advise them. One is uh, we do a progress report to parliament every year, uh, which uh, is progress on meeting the carbon budgets and the climate targets and when we do that we we look at the uk economy and we divide it into the main emitting uh, sectors like industry and we say well this is how much we know the government has said it wants to reduce emissions how is it going how is yeah. it going now and how is it going in the near future in carbon budget periods we also help set those carbon budgets and the long-term uh, emissions reduction target so we advise the government the carbon budgets are five yearly periods that lead to that what's now a net zero target we advise the government what the carbon budget is what the target should be the government then goes away they can accept that reject it so far they've we've done six of them they've accepted them all and then they become enshrined in law so they become legal interim targets on the way to net zero so yeah. that's what we do and it's uh, a crucial part of it is that we're independent so we're public servants we're publicly funded but we're not civil servants so we don't have a ministerial overlord which right. does give us um, uh, the ability to say things that perhaps uh, civil servants can't 
And it's quite a holistic view, isn't it? And I know you're here to, to see the steel industry yeah. and you talk then about emissions from energy intensive industries such as steel, but it's, it seems like a holistic view. And I've I got a feeling this is a separate podcast about the costs of carbon and carbon taxes uh, because they're designed as an incentive clearly yeah. for people to decarbonise and move down that, that road. And we'll come on to a bit of that, uh, how that's going down. But they can also act as a penalty to those who are struggling to afford to decarbonise. So, do you leave that sort of stuff to the government because it's a policy decision and you kind of take the, the, the moral high ground if you want? Would that be fair? There are some, there are some specific areas where we're asked to um, comment. We, the, the government uh, is kind of required to consult us and one is the, uh, the structuring of the ETS. So um, w that's one of the things where if, when the government changes uh, things like allocations or the overall ETS target, now UK ETS, they will ask us uh, right. and we'll, we'll give uh, opinions on that. I haven't actually been involved uh, with that myself so far. I should say I've been at the committee for about nine or ten months, right. so relative newcomer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we will, we will give our opinion on those sort of things. But it's, it's a fine line that we tread um, be, be between giving independent advice, but we're not we're not activists, yeah, yeah. we're not there to criticise the government, we're there to yeah. advise them. But it's quite a responsibility into all the existential crises people talk about. The climate's the big one, isn't it? And I guess yeah. a relatively small group with a massive remit, but a yeah. huge amount of influence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've come here today to put all the steelworks, yeah. to, see, to see the steelworks with, with, with some of your colleagues. Um, to better understand it, because it's one yeah. thing sitting in an ivory tower in office, exactly. is another thing, as you've discovered, uh, seeing the steelworks. What, what have your and your team's impressions been of the visit today? Yeah, well, I mean, f first of all, I mean, whether, whether you, you might call it an ivory tower, but certainly we're, I, I'm normally at a desk. I'm trying to understand the industry from a desk. I do talk to people like UK, uh, UK Steel and representatives of other industries, but there's really no replacement for coming to a factory and seeing how it's done. Because you, know, you, can, you can read about how to decarbonise things and it all looks quite simple on paper in a way, but it's not until you come and see the scale and the complexity of this type of plant. Um, so that's one of the things that's hit me today. Uh, and, uh, and my colleagues as well. Uh, the complexity of it, I mean, we've, we've, your, your colleagues have done a good job of explaining what's happening in each stage, but you know, I'm not sure we've understood 10% of it because it is incredibly complex. It is, yeah. uh, there's a lot of interacting uh, machines, and at the end of the day, you've got this very precisely calibrated product and you're producing huge amounts of it, millions of tons a year. So it's very mm. impressive. So the, the, the technical engineering aspects have been impressive, but also uh, the pride uh, in this place, the pride in its history, the pride in what you do mm. every day and your role in the economy has really come through. Uh, and, and the culture of um, you know, safety and mutual support that's also struck us, and another mm. thing you can't get by just reading reports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it is a very impressive place, and for anyone who hasn't been, if you ever get the opportunity, you should come to, to, to any industry, I guess. But you know, if we come on to steel and its role in decarbonising society and, in, yeah. and, and, and reducing the impact on climate change, you know, we have recently announced, as I said in the opening, that, that our intention is to move from blast furnaces to electric arc furnaces which will have a significant reduction in carbon emissions. Yeah. But we've been trying to talk, as we've been trying to persuade the government to, to support us in this journey, we've tried to talk not just about changing from one technology to another, but the importance of steel throughout the supply chain, especially in the UK around resilience, because every manufacturing supply chain relies on steel. We always say, 
if it's not made of steel, it's made using steel. Yeah. So as you in the Climate Change Committee, when you look at industry, is it your position that steel is one of the most important industries to decarbonise, I guess, alongside energy? Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, if you mean by energy, electricity, in a way, that's probably a lot simpler. Yeah. Um, and we've been doing that for you know quite some time. That's been decarbonising for decades, really, yeah. in this country. And yeah. the plan is to have it pretty much decarbonised by 2035, which is only 12 years away. Uh, I think steel is uh, w w one of the harder ones, but there are other hard sectors too, you know, the whole land use area, which I don't know so much about, but there mm. are aspects of that which are quite uh, hard to decarbonise. Um, so, yes, we do. When, when you talk about resilience, um, the Climate Change Committee's got a remit to consider competitiveness. Um, so, you know, when, when we're thinking about different policies and different ways when you might decarbonise, uh, we're required to take in my to take account of competitiveness with other countries. So, right. think about consider the, the the possibility that you know measures that might look good will actually lead to the closure of an industry and moving overseas. Yeah. National um, sort of national resilience and the importance of still in the economy is probably going a bit beyond. Uh, our remit. And, yeah, uh, it's yeah. Not to say it's not important, but it's probably not something we're asked to yeah. consider. Yeah, because I guess it's a conversation we have with politicians and political stakeholders to say, you know, it's difficult to imagine a country without steel, given the, what, yeah. what the country's trying to do, and especially on that journey to a green economy. If you, yeah. you know, if you want smart buildings, and you want electric vehicles, and you want. Um, uh, you know, wind turbines, renewable solar farms, yeah. and stuff. You kind of need steel, and you have a choice about whether you import it from another country. That's right whether it's got high or low um, carbon ambitions or not. Yeah. I guess, and again, if you go the other way and you look to this industry potentially moving towards electric arc furnace, which would be scrap-based or mm. used steel-based, yeah. pre-loved steel, you might call it, in a <laughs> common vernacular, pre-loved yeah. steel-based, um, then, then, then that's better for the environment because we're not shipping in raw material from all over the world, mm. but should also be better for the UK resilience. I know you say it's kind of outside your specific remit but do you get a sense that that is understood within the within the discussions you're having with government uh w to be honest we don't we don't talk uh to government about that type of thing so m my main interaction with government is with the department of energy and next uh, net zero yeah and so we're generally talking about uh different policies to uh decarbonize uh, rather than the role of steel in resilience. Just personally, yes, I think it, it, it's, you know, steel is a, a, absolutely a foundation industry. It is for the, you know, for the normal economy, but especially as we move to net zero and we'll need so many things, not least thousands of wind turbines that use hundreds of tons of steel That's each. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, but it's interesting you said about you know, the competitiveness nature mm. of it because I think it's critically important to the future of the industry. And when we talk, we've been talking to government for, for, for many years about the cost of energy in the yeah. UK and how it puts us as a competitive disadvantage compared yeah. to our peers in, in Europe and so forth. And as we move towards electric arc furnace steel making, then we'll be much more reliant on electricity and, in theory, in green electricity. Yeah. Uh, because there's no point in, in you know, reducing carbon 
moving from a blast furnace to an, to an electric arc furnace if you're just going to burn it That's in right. a coal-fired power station to fire the electric arc furnace. Yeah. Um, now, the government's done quite a lot, the current government's done quite a lot in terms of energy prices and the supercharger mm. policy that gets us on a more competitive playing ground. But it's that balance, isn't it, about saying what's good for the environment and yeah. what is good financially? How, how much do you discuss that interrelationship between energy specifically? Yeah and energy intensive industries. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely within our ballpark. Uh, and when, when we do a carbon budget, this, you know, this uh, assessment of how, how much the UK is going to reduce its emissions and how it's going to do it, we'll be considering what the energy costs are. That'll be part of our modeling and our part of our modeling for industry. So electrification of industry generally is one of the main pillars yeah. for decarbonisation. The others, uh, the other main ones really being carbon capture and storage and hydrogen. Yeah. But, but electrification, a really important one. And so we're aware, we hear from industry and it's, it's true that the price of electricity is just prohibitive yeah. uh, for most, not just, you know, steel, but for most industries for switching to electricity. It's just much cheaper to, to burn something else. It's usually, usually <laughs> yeah, gas, it is, yeah. you know, but yeah, yeah. whatever it is, it's cheaper to burn something. Um, so that's part of our, in our progress report each year, we, we give an assessment, okay, and the government itself says, you know, one of the planks of industrial decarbonisation is electrification. And so we, we kind of rate that as, this year we rated it red, so mm. the worst score, because right. there's not a plan for it, there are no incentives, which there are for hydrogen and carbon, uh, carbon capture and storage, and in fact there are disincentives in mm. the high electricity price, the fact that certain levies are put onto electricity, which they're not onto gas. Uh, and we all pay a wholesale cost for electricity driven by the gas market, despite mm. the fact that We've got you know, a, a, a significant right. proportion of renewables and low carbon in the grid now. That's mm. not what sets the price, it's gas. Yeah. So all of these are problems which lead to a high electricity price, which is a disincentive for what we actually want, which yeah. is more electrification. Yeah, and it does seem like some of these things are some distance away. And we had a previous podcast, John Gibbons from Sheffield University, who spoke very eloquently about um, passionately about carbon capture. And of course, yeah. the government's put 20 billion pounds behind, yeah. uh, behind carbon capture technology. For, 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 for good reason, I'm sure. Hydrogen's another thing that mm. always comes up. You know? yeah. But hydrogen seems a long way away. Green hydrogen certainly seems a long yeah. way away. And um, you know, for industries such as ours, you've been to the hot mill today, mm. for example, and we said, look, there's a potential to use hydrogen as a fuel to reheat mm. the slabs in the hot rolling mill. That seems a long way away. How far away is it, do you think, green hydrogen? Well, as you say, yeah, it's a long way away. I think that uh, I, I read the other day that the global total in electrolyzers, and I can't remember the number, but it's pretty underwhelming. Mm. It's probably, you know, the global total is probably about what you'd need for the hot mill. Um, so green or blue hydrogen, blue hydrogen being where you use CCS, CCS to bury the carbon in natural gas and, yep. and burn the hydrogen, are both they're both far away, but at least they're incentivized. And there's a business model that the government's published and companies can review that uh, business model and some of them are choosing that path. Yeah. Um, you know, n not so much here, and I think that's in South Wales. And I think that's partly because there isn't a, uh, a CCS, a carbon storage repository off the that's coast right. here. So that's it would rely right. on shipping. Yeah. So I think it's those clusters that have direct access to CCS where yeah. hydrogen is. Uh, yeah. 
going ahead. Yeah, and I'm sure it'll develop over time. And when people talk to us about a lot of issues around decarbonising, you go, yeah, but that's the situation today. But tomorrow could be different, and next year it could be different, and five years could be different. Yeah. And you know, we've got a few years yet before, if the plans go through with the electric art furnace, uh, there's a few years before that comes yeah. to fruition, and, yeah. and and some of those issues may may be resolved over that period of time. Yeah, I'll just add one more thing about you know this the, the, these three main pillars: CCS, hydrogen, electrification of industrial decarbonisation. My view is that we should electrify where possible because it's it's more efficient, um, and uh, in in the long run it will be cheaper and mm. will require less subsidy. There are things where it's just probably too difficult to do it mm. and therefore we will need CCS and hydrogen and there are process emissions where just electrifying doesn't doesn't yeah. cut it like yeah. from cement so we may need to sequester that yeah. uh, that carbon but I think where possible we should electrify and that's that's why we're critical of the government for not mm. having a strategy and set of incentives to do it yeah but and I guess you know, the, the forward view of that electrification would be from renewable energy primarily yes, that's right and uh, I think the UK's done extremely well in terms of offshore yeah. uh, wind uh, and there's lots yeah. of potential for floating offshore wind yeah. here on the doorstep of Patal but yeah. you know, we get very yeah. excited about um, the discussions with RWE Renewables and their ambitions yeah. for floating offshore wind to generate that and of course solar is yeah. another and uh, again we've got some great relationships with some of our customers Solarport who do these solar farms mm. so there's great potential for that circular economy potentially yeah. for steel with the Celtic Freeport potentially here, yeah. the Celtic Sea on the doorstep. Yeah. yeah. How excited do you get about that, that sort of industrial ecosystems developing? Well, I mean, just, just to go back to the decarbonisation of the grid, that's obviously when, should be clear, when we're talking about electrification, it goes hand in hand with that decarbonisation. You know, there's no, it's not decarbonising unless you decarbonise the energy source. Yeah. Um, so while we have built, you know, the uh, offshore wind is a fantastic story for the UK uh, and we've built, you know, many gigawatts of it now, we need to go a lot further and, and the next bit, uh, so I've said, you know, we're aiming to decarbonise the grid, this is the government's aim by 2035 or near net zero by 2035 for the grid, um, that's going to be harder than what we've done so far because mm. we're getting into the uh, the territory of where the intermittency, the natural intermittency of wind, it will be mostly wind, and but also of solar, mm. um, needs to be managed. So we need some kind of strategy to do that. And that's yeah. another area where we've recommended to the government that we, we need an overall strategy of how mm. we do this mm. difficult bit. It can be done, um, but it, it, it is tricky. Uh, yeah, course, it, yeah. We're one of the leaders in doing this. Mm. And so, yeah, we need to work out how to get there. What we think is that solar and wind will provide our energy directly without balancing about 70% 70, 70 of the time. Wow. The other 30% we need, where, uh, we're gonna have nuclear, and, we're, and then we're gonna have to have things that are very flexible um, that fill in those yeah. gaps, basically. So yeah. that, that'll be things like hydrogen generation. Yeah. Um, gas uh, generators with CCS and maybe a very small amount of gas without CCS. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, these things go around, don't they? And, um, um, you know, nuclear clearly has a, a, a part to play in it. And, you know, I guess I was growing up in, this, in the 70s, showing my age now, but when nuclear was, was de deemed a terrible thing. Yeah. And all of a sudden people are saying, yeah, but now it's a great thing because it's, it's carbon, carbon free. And I guess the other aspect of that that we've not touched on and not for today 
is the challenge of storing energy, isn't it? Yeah. Is that one of the, the world's greatest challenges? I, th I think it is that this is partly what I'm talking about, um, developing this system where you're able to rely on uh, intermittent sources of energy. So in most countries around the world, I mean, there are a few that have got lots of hydro or geothermal, but mostly it's going to be solar and wind that produce yeah. our uh, renewable electricity. They're obviously intermittent. You yeah. know, solar's very intermittent. Yeah. <laughs> especially in Wales. Yeah. Especially in Wales, especially in the UK. So we need to store energy. Um, I think we know what the short, the answer for short-term energy storage is, and a lot of that is going to be batteries. But batteries don't get you through two weeks of winter when the wind's no. not no. blowing. No. So we, we need to store it. Um, mm. So that's why we'll probably still need gas yeah. uh, for some time. Uh, biomass as well, yeah. uh, hopefully with CCS. So that could be a carbon negative technology and stored hydrogen. Yeah. yeah. Now, you know, as we talk through all of these different technologies, the one thing that is becoming maybe more apparent to the general public is the cost yeah. of going green financially and in terms of jobs potentially yeah. uh, on a positive and negative basis. But the, but the cost of going green yeah. is starting to, to, it feels like it's starting to get politicians and the public to start pushing back. And we've yeah. seen Rishi Sunak say, yeah. Just, we're just going to slow it down. We're still going to go 2050, but we're going to slow it down because, yeah. you know, this cannot impact on people's lives. Yeah. And, you know, government governs with the permission of society. Yeah. And do you have any sympathy for society pushing back on the speed of change? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and we've got a big team now internally called the People and Business Team. And one of the things they're, you know, uh, assessing is how we make this transition fair. You know, yeah. it has to be fair. We, we, we know it can be done technically. We've got the solutions to do it. And we, actually, we know that it's, it's pretty affordable o overall. So I think, um, I can't tell you the exact figures, but in the sixth carbon budget, the last one that we did, um, I think we said that most of the cost of it is offset by what we save uh, on fossil, using less fossil fuels. So, mm. you know, we'll switch to electric vehicles. There'll be a cost of that but eventually we won't be buying any petrol to, to yeah. run our cars, so that there's a saving on the other side. So the, the actual cost in any single year, I don't think rises above 1% of GDP. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, we think it's affordable, uh, and there'll be many benefits to the country and things mm. like you know, clean air, for example, yeah. greater energy security. Yeah. But that's not to say there won't be individuals, if we don't do this right, yeah. who, for whom there are, there, are, there are costs on them, either in terms of having to pay for something or you know, they lose their job because mm. industry is yeah. going to change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, there'll be fewer petrol yeah. stations, for example. Yeah. Um, so that's part of government's job, as we see it, to make that fair and yeah. to, to be... Uh, aware of these issues and have a, and have a plan for them. Yeah, and would you, yeah. would you say part of that is the inevitability that when you introduce new things, they're always more expensive. You've got to pay for the research. There's fewer of them. So, you know, things like electric vehicles, really mm. expensive. Yeah. Heat pumps, really expensive. People yeah. can't afford them. They can't yeah. go green. So they're saying, why yeah. do I need to be poorer to have the same outcome? Yeah. But I guess over a period of time, you know, if I go back to when I was young and a computer, mm. a computer would have cost me three thousand pounds in yeah, nineteen eighty, yeah. yeah. and it now cost me three hundred pounds yeah. forty years later. So, yeah. you know, because of the mass production and so forth, is mm. is is that what's going to happen with green technologies? Yeah, is it going to become bigger and wider and therefore cheaper? Do you think? I think for many of them it will. Yeah, uh, and we've seen that with solar and wind. 
Um, I think if you go back to the s s 70s, if you go back far enough, back to when you said you were growing <laughs> up, I think solar was something like 100 times more expensive than today. Yeah. So it was, it was used on space shuttles and, you know, a few very niche uh, uses. But, you know, you wouldn't have it on your house yeah. uh, 100 times more expensive. Yeah. Even if you go back 10 or 12 years, it was 10 times more expensive, yeah. you know. So even then, it's not economic yeah. for yeah. running a grid. Yeah. At the price it is now, solar in many countries is the cheapest form of generating electricity, which is an incredible transformation. Mm. In this country, the cheapest form is onshore wind, mm. which has seen not quite as dramatic as solar, but very dramatic. Yeah. But no one wants price. a wind turbine on their back doorstep. Well, there's that, there's the, there's, there's that issue. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, electric vehicles, you know, the main cost is is the batteries yeah uh, and that's why they've been more expensive yeah but they're expected sometime this decade I, th I think you can see different mm. projections uh, to be cheaper to buy and they're already a lot cheaper to run yeah. so once they're cheaper to buy you know I think yeah. there'll be a good news story and no one yeah. you know people buy them now but no one's forced to yeah um, but by the time you know you can't buy a petrol car I think yeah. we're pretty confident that it will be cheaper anyway to yeah. buy an electric yeah. car. Yeah. Uh, and, and the same with heat pumps. I mean, heat pump, we're seeing some deals now come onto the market. Uh, I think Ovo and Octopus and British Gas, there with the government grant, they're offering heat pumps around mm. the same ballpark as a, as a gas boiler. Yeah. I think I've even seen ones that are, that are cheaper. And that's, yeah. that's already... So by the end of the decade, I think you could expect they're going to be cheaper and, and yeah. better. I guess that's what we're all hoping for as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Now, if I could just turn on to a point where, you know, you are the UK Climate Change Committee, I guess. Yeah. Climate change is a global issue. Yeah. Um, when I talked to, I mentioned John Gibbons before at Sheffield University, he was very much the opinion that because Britain's a relatively small country, the effect you can have on climate change is actually very small mm. globally. Yeah. He was saying our responsibility as a developed nation should be to invest in technologies that are demonstrable that other countries yeah. can pick up rather than yeah. just looking after our own look rather than just looking after our own little island and yeah. saying well we're doing our bit yeah how can we take the lead and have a demonstrable technology that others can lead yeah is that something that's within the remit of climate change committee or are you just saying listen it's uk government uk society we're going to worry about the uk no we're very aware about our role as climate leaders uh, successive governments have pitched uh, the UK as climate leaders and you know there's there's some justification behind that and it's it's not just about I agree with, uh, with your previous um, guest's uh, point about technology, but it's, I don't think it's just about technology. So, you know, one of the ways we've been a, a climate leader is to set ambitious targets and to, to legislate those. So I've, I'm not sure if we were the first country in the world to legislate a climate target, but we were one of the first, and one of the first to make that a net zero target, because mm. originally that was a 80% reduction by 2050. Um, uh, we've also led the world in contracts for difference. So the, the, the business model that has led to the offshore wind uh, revolution, which has also made us a leader yeah. in offshore wind. So I, I, I agree, the UK's got a role there and it has uh, played that role in many ways. And it's important we don't lose that uh, because those models, so the, the Climate Change Committee model, for example, yeah. is copied by many other countries now. Um, contracts for difference are copied by many other countries. Other, f other countries have followed with mm. legislating net zero targets, and uh, we'd very much like to see us uh, continue. It's that a real difficult role. challenge, and I don't know. I don't think anyone knows the right answer. I, you know, I have some sympathy with John's perspective about saying we can be a thought leader in technologies, but then 
you know, should you hold back your own ambitions and all that? It's a real difficult yeah. one, isn't it? I, I would say Britain can't lead on everything. Mm. You know, it, it, it is a big world. We're a tiny part of GDP. Um, so, you know, let's say battery technology or solar panels, you know, maybe that's for other countries to lead on. But Britain, yeah. Britain can choose certain things, um, technologies, business models, policies, and, and lead yeah. on them. Yeah. And going back to a point I was talking about earlier about, um, you know, where the pressure comes on to uh, decarbonise. So in the steel industry, so yeah. let's talk about the, the steel industry. So legislators say, this is the right thing to do for society, for yeah. the UK, for the world. This is the right thing to do. We're going to start introducing legislation to incentivise companies to move towards a lower carbon solution. And whether it's due to that or, or, or public awareness or public pressure, society also says it's important to improve yeah. our environmental credentials and reduce uh, um, the impact on, on, on the environment and the climate. Do you think that, at least for the short term, that these green solutions, if we can call mm. them that, provide private companies such as Tata Steel with a competitive advantage? I mean, it'd be interesting to get your perspective on that, that Tim. Um, what I would say is it, it should do, because I, before this job, I was a consultant, and one of the things I used to do is work with companies to develop their climate targets uh, and set net zero strategy, often under the auspices of something called the Science-Based Targets yeah. Initiative. Yeah, yeah, we know that, yeah. So just under the science-based targets initiative i think there's something like six i looked it up on the way so some i'm surprised it's gone up since i a lot since i last looked there are six thousand companies with uh targets uh under that initiative and there are many more that in under other initiatives or they've just announced it in annual reports those when they make those uh uh when they set those targets they're including everything in their supply chain so every company construction company automotive, yeah. you know, machinery company that buys steel is essentially saying that they will be buying zero or very low carbon steel yeah. in the future. So there is, there is a huge potential demand there, but it'd be interesting to know from you if yeah. I could turn it around, yeah, yeah. if you're seeing that, because what I saw as a consultant is these companies setting these targets are not necessarily making it clear to their supply chain that they've effectively set a, t a target for them. And I think a, a company as sophisticated and large as Tata knows that that's going on, but for a smaller manufacturer, they not, may not be aware of uh, yeah. this. So I think if you asked our marketing director, Russell Codling, he would say, absolutely, there's an advantage. He would say, our customers are crying out for green steel. Now, whether that's a result of the legislation that is being imposed on them or consumer demand for their products, um, might not be quite might not be quite clear, um, but they are certainly looking at the steel industry to supply them with greener products. And I guess certainly within Europe, I can't imagine a place where some companies are providing a net zero steel, and some people are providing a non net zero steel for a cheaper cheap, cheaper amount a less, less amount of money and being competitive. I just yeah. don't think our customers in, are, are in that place. Um, so I do think there's a competitive advantage in the short term. I think it won't be long before it becomes an entry-level requirement. Yeah. And uh, if you're not making green steel or net zero steel, I don't think you'll be in the game, certainly yeah. in Europe. But there's a big old world out there. 
And Pete Quinn, who's been with us today, our sustainability director, keeps reminding me that by 2050, 50% of the world's steel will still be made using virgin materials yeah. through blast furnaces. Uh, and it's a globally competitive market. So, so maybe there's an advantage for, for some time to go. But listen, Michael, I'm very conscious. You've been with us all day, and it's been a pleasure to have you and your colleagues here and, uh, and, and show you around the works. But I'm conscious it's now starting to get dark, and you've got a home to go to like the rest of us. But I did want to just pick up on one sort of final thing, which is about the role of governments and, and, and they're, how they're incentivizing companies to move to green technologies. And we talked before about you know, carbon costs are designed to be an incentive, but actually mm. can be a disincentive because it means you haven't got enough capital, mm. you can't make enough capital uh, uh, to spend on, on new schemes, which is a difficult thing. But do you think they are doing enough to incentivize companies to move to green technologies? And if not, what are the things that they should be doing to support industries, energy intensive industries such as steel, to decarbonise? Yeah, yeah. This, this is where we run into uh, the fact that I've only been at the committee for 10 months and I'm always a bit uncertain as to you know, what we can say about government policy. Uh, but, but you said government, so it's clear that around the world governments are not doing enough to meet the targets that they themselves have set. Uh, which is to limit warming to well below two degrees at minimum mm, mm. and to thrive to 1.5. So I think, I think that's safe to say. When it comes to our government, uh, there's a good track record in reducing emissions. We've got good targets, but as our last report, progress report said, uh, when we look to the medium term, so what we call carbon budgets five and six, which takes us to... Um, uh, 2032 and then carbon budget six is 2037 it's we're not doing enough mm. to continue on the trajectory that we need to be on to uh, to uh, reach net zero and to hit the interim targets on the way to net zero which are just as important mm. so so overall uh, s some things are good um, but it's not enough yeah. uh, you know uh, and that's that, that's a comment globally. Uh, one of the good things that's happened in the last few years is the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which is you know, a huge amount of federal money to back things like clean energy, hydrogen, mm. uh, industrial decarbonisation. And it's really many billions. I think in some senses it's Trillions, uh, yeah. un uncapped mm. uh, and uh, all sorts of tax incentives, which is seen as... Um, uh, stimulating a huge amount of the private sector investment that's mm. needed. Uh, so the second part of your question was what, what can government do to stimulate yeah. that? Well, that's one thing that, that's, that's clearly working. Mm. Uh, I think having, having clear strategies and um, the, the, the CEO of Ford said something recently about there are three things that business needs, something like uh, confidence, ambition, certainty, something, right, yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. So once you've set the net zero target, then don't waver from the target. Mm. Policies will may change along the way, but don't leave any doubt that that's mm. the trajectory yeah. that we're going on. Yeah. Um, in, in the terms of incentivizing industry, I think government procurement is something that can play a role. So before we were talking about the demand from 
businesses, but you know, I don't know what proportion of steel government effectively buys through yeah. government-funded projects, but it's quite a large proportion, yeah, isn't it, client, in, yeah. in this country. So they could take the lead uh, in in setting targets for how steel should decarbonise and being the, the purchaser of that steel yeah. and being willing to perhaps to, to pay a bit more for it. So I yeah. think that's one thing that they could do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think the UK Steel Charter is is targeting exactly that, whether it's the government or local authorities, who, after all, are the people who build you know railways and roads and schools and hospitals and stuff, which are yeah. all steel intensive, to say, how can you commit to... to using UK-made steel and yeah. within that incentivising the, the UK steel industry to decarbonise, which, you know, they put their hand in their pocket yeah. and, they're, they're, and they're helping us on that road, so I suppose, Indeed. Um, you know, um, we're, we're on the road and it's just interesting to get your perspectives yeah. about where that might go next. Yeah, so. and, and you mentioned the carbon price and I think, you know, the, the carbon price does penalise carbon emissions, so in principle it's a good thing, but, you know, we're very aware, you know, as I said, we're, we're asked one of our part of our remit is to consider competitiveness if you're paying a carbon price in this country but you can still import steel from countries where it's not paid yeah. you know that's that doesn't really make sense so we're glad that the government is considering a carbon border adjustment mechanism and we think that that makes sense yeah listen time time's run out i'm afraid michael it's been a pleasure to have you guys here today and i'm delighted that climate change committee have kind of seen the steel industry firsthand seen it how it is today seen our processes understand how they work and talk to some of the people in our business yeah. about the challenges that we've got going forward and and our our aspirations, you know, Henrik Adam, our CEO, our chairman, always says, look, we've got the skills, we've got the ambition, we've got the knowledge, we yeah. just need to get over that that hill about getting some commitment from the government in terms of policy yeah. uh, and in terms of capital expenditure. And I guess, you know, with a five-term parliament, it's quite difficult to say, well, we know the policies for today, but we don't know what they're going to be in five years' time and yeah. whether future governments will, will back it further or impose further green levies will be challenges yeah. that we have to come up against. But hopefully you are now, as a group, you know, sort of friends and defenders of the steel industry and uh, you will have certainly a, a, you know, a, a more emotional and better informed understanding of our challenges here. But listen, great to see you today. And it's been fascinating. Thank you, Tim. You're very welcome. Thanks. So listen, I hope you're enjoying this uh, series of Steelcast, which is focusing on decarbonisation. We're trying to talk to as many people as we can inside the business and outside the business. Great to hear today from Michael about, from the Climate Change Committee about what they're doing in terms of uh, influencing and working with government and the role of energy intensive industries such as steel in reducing the impact of society on the climate. Um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, please do, and then you'll get the latest episode straight to your phone or your device. Um, we're featuring on Podbean, on Google, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, so if you haven't subscribed, please do so. If you want to leave a comment, please do that as well. And if you think there's other people we should speak to or other topics you would like us to address, uh, then let us know and uh, we'll see what we can do along the way. But thanks for joining uh, today's podcast and uh, see you soon. Mm -hmm.